Hey, bird lovers. Here at Bird Note, we believe that when we love something, we have to protect it. But habitat loss, pollution, climate change, and more are threatening the lives of birds. That's why we're on a mission to inspire and empower our audience to translate the love for birds into action for Earth and all of its inhabitants. In this special season of Bring Birds Back, we're putting the spotlight on threats to our planet. And it's our hope that this knowledge will not only inform you, but propel you to act. Learn more about the From Love to Action campaign when you visit us at birdnote.org. Birdnote presents. From Birdnote, this is Bring Birds Back. I'm your guest host, Ade Ben Salahuddin. I'm a biology education major at Southern Connecticut State University, and my lifelong love of dinosaurs led me here to the love of their modern-day feathery counterparts. When birds began falling from the sky in 1994, it triggered a chain of scientific discovery that would last for over 25 years. Known as one of the greatest mass mystery deaths in North American bird history, bald eagles in west-central Arkansas flew to their deaths near DeGray Lake. Eagles were reported flying directly into mountain cliffs and trees with wobbling feet and unstable wings, a drunken clumsiness. A worry to ornithologists, scientists, and bird lovers alike, nothing could be further from the norm for these powerful predators. So why did more than 70 eagles die from 1994 to 1996 near the Gray Lake? What if I told you that a small, unassuming waterweed was at the root of it all. In this special season of Bring Birds Back, we're not just talking about how to save the birds, we're also discussing how to save the planet. This season, we invite you to join us in our quest to inspire a million people to take action toward combating climate change. And in this episode, we'll explore the world of invasive aquatic plants, what they are, how they got here, and what kind of threats they pose to our native ecosystems. And most importantly, you'll learn some ways that we can help stop their spread. We'll speak to experts working hard to solve these problems on the ground, like Greg Bugby, a Connecticut plant scientist who will take me out to meet the eagle-killing plant face-to-face in one of its newest hotspots, which just so happens to be my largest local waterway. Well, welcome to the Connecticut River. Prefer you wear life jackets, but you don't have to if you're a confident swimmer. But first, let's start at the beginning. I got in touch with Stacy Holt Jr., a Kansas-born PhD student and fellow black evolutionary biologist, to understand the basics about invasive aquatic plants and how they can be a threat to birds, humans, and our environment alike. Good afternoon, Stacy. Could you introduce yourself to the good people listening at home? Hi, today. I'm glad to be here. I am a second-year PhD student at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. I'm a botanist and evolutionary biologist, and I work on how plants adapt to their environment, focusing on both native and invasive plant species. And in general, I just have a love of plants. Oh, you do evolutionary biology too. Okay. So we're kind of in the same sphere of interest then. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess on the evolutionary biology side, I'm trying to look at how plants are adapting to the environments that they live in. 
And then the practical side of it is how can we apply this knowledge that we have to either manage invasive species and get rid of them in the field or promote species that we may want to conserve? Right. So stepping back a little bit, we use the term invasive versus native plants. So what is sort of the definition of an invasive plant or an invasive species and why do we usually consider them bad for the environment? That's a great question. And it can be tricky to answer at times, I think. But in general, an invasive plant species didn't originate in an area or in an ecosystem. And it's usually been transported to this new or introduced range through some type of human-mediated dispersal. So humans are bringing this along, typically over a long distance as well. And the second part to that is that once it gets into this new ecosystem, it starts to cause either ecological or economic harm to that ecosystem. So the ecological harm is usually a reduction in biodiversity. And that just means that you lose a lot of the native plant species or other species that may be in that area due to the introduction of this invasive. So when you have all of the native species there, they're all playing some role in supporting each other, as well as keeping the system stable and keeping it from changing so quickly. And when all of these organisms have grown to depend on one another, and you start getting rid of some of this biodiversity due to this invasive species, not only do they lose this support that they had for one another, but also they might not get along so well with this invasive plant, which could just cause extra detriment to this ecosystem. You pointed out that their presence is not a good thing usually for the local ecosystems. How often does this actually happen when you know plants get moved from one place to another? And do you think that they might be increasing in frequency? So it, it happens pretty often. And I think it's happening even more since the world has become interconnected, you could say. And so the more that we move things around from place to place, the more we're bringing invasive species with us. We might bring a new crop to the United States because we think it's pretty or we think it's going to provide some type of service. And then it ends up being something that's invasive and causing some detrimental harm. And so I can't remember exactly the paper that it is. I think it's Roman and Darling 2007, but they cite how many invasive aquatic introductions there are in the San Francisco Bay Area every week. And so it is quite frequent. So frequent that they reported, on average, a new species of plant, animal, or protist, think algae or kelp, was introduced every 14 weeks. That's about four new species each year, nearly quadruple the rate of invasion observed before 1960. But I guess I should just say, even if you have these introductions of new species, there's a process that has to occur for them to become invasive. And so maybe not 100% of those species that we're bringing over are becoming invasive, but the more that it happens, the more invasive species are gonna occur. Four new species a year may not seem like much, but as of 2023, the San Francisco Bay remains the invasion capital of the world. Today, up to 90% of its aquatic species are non-native. And on a global scale, over 37,000 invasive species have been introduced by human travel. With all this in mind, I asked Stacy which plants he finds the most troubling. The European common reed, scientific name Phragmites australis, was among his top few. Phragmites australis is a taller type of reed grass, and so it gets established in the soils or in the mud, and then grows like five to seven feet tall. I think if you've been anywhere on the coast in the southeast of the United States, you've probably seen this plant. 
this species is kind of displacing a lot of the local community on the coast. And when it does so, it's causing a loss or detriment to the coastline. And so we're losing coastline due to other reasons, maybe even like water levels rising and things like that. But this is causing a loss to the barrier that we have between the coast and the ocean. And so that's just one of the negative things that's a result of this invasion kind of intermixing with natives, but also causing a collapse in some of the ecosystem services that we really need on the coast of the United States. After giving me the rundown, Stacy then told me about the plant that he primarily studies. So Salvinia molesta is native to Brazil, but it's actually been found on all continents except Antarctica. So it first arrived in the United States sometime in the 1990s in Texas and Louisiana. It has a pair of leaves that float above the water that are green and round, and then it has some highly modified leaves that float below the water, acting as some type of roots for this plant. And so how it came to the United States, we think, is probably, so somebody was using it for their aquatic garden, and they thought it looked cool and wanted to bring it along. But once it was released into the waterways, we saw that it began to do things that invasive species do, and so it was kind of taking over freshwater environments that it was introduced into. It's able to grow very quickly. I think it can double its biomass in about two days. So we see that once it becomes established, it starts creating changes in the aquatic ecosystem, usually a loss of sunlight to plants underneath, as well as decreased oxygen levels. So then this can affect organisms that live in the water below that aren't able to leave the lake or the freshwater system, such as fish, causing a decrease in fish populations, moving up the food chain, causing a decrease in organisms that might eat the fish, including things like otters or different bird species that might live in the area that depend on these fish. In the areas where it comes from, there must be some sort of balance that it has with its local ecosystem to keep it from doing that. And I know in some plants, there's been some idea to maybe bring over some of their predators into a new area to help sort of weed them out, if you will. Yeah, so that's kind of the thing about invasive plant species. So we kind of wonder how they do what they do. How are they successful in this new environment? And there's a few things that help them do that. So to directly answer your question, there is some type of biological control. In their native environment, there are organisms like insects or even microbes that infect the plant and kill it or um, eat it and live on it to keep it in check. But there's also other plant species around that are able to compete with this plant and make sure that it doesn't take over the ecosystem. And those plants and those organisms have been around this plant, Salvinia molesta, for a long period of time. So they've had those thousands to millions of years to kind of adjust to one another. But when you bring it into this new environment, it doesn't really have that control type of mechanism in the ecosystem yet. Okay. So moving forward a little bit, uh, we were talking about effects on both the plants and the animals. What are the specific problems that Salvina is introducing more so on the, the human side of things? So it's more invasive in the southern United States, but usually temperature is the thing that is limiting its spread northwards. I was talking to locals at these different freshwater bodies, and this plant is really just kind of limiting their use of these local ecosystems and their enjoyment. So whether that be water sports or bird watching or even traveling on the lake through boat 
or kayak, this plant is just making all those things more difficult, if not impossible. But also, Salvinia molesta is known to harbor things. I guess a good example would be uh, mosquitoes, increased mosquito populations and causing a higher spread or rate of disease in areas where it's a really bad infestation. And so I think just a combination of those two things. And these impacts typically take years of dedicated research, data, and developments to slowly uncover. For instance, those bald eagles that we discussed at the beginning of the episode, the cause of their deaths went unsolved for two and a half decades. Although it became clear that a toxin was to blame, exactly what kind and what produced it remained unknown. That was until 2021, when Stefan Breilinger and colleagues discovered and published their findings in the journal Science. The culprit? A cyanobacteria. And its accomplice? Hydrilla, more commonly known as Watertime. Hydrilla in the southeast, particularly the Carolinas, Georgia, and that area, they noticed that eagles and osprey were dying. That's Greg Bugby, associate scientist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and principal investigator of their Invasive Aquatic Plants Program. We met at the dock of Deep River Landing, one of the Connecticut River's oldest historical ports. After a lot of research, took years and years, they were able to determine that there's what's called a cyanobacteria associated with the hydrilla that grows on the hydrilla leaves that when ingested by birds of prey particularly, causes brain damage and the birds will die. Scientists learned that in the right conditions, the cyanobacteria found on hydrilla releases a pair of neurotoxins that attacks the nervous system and destroys nerve cells in the brain. Symptoms of this neurological disorder, called vacuolar myelinopathy, include unstable balance and stiff legs. So there is a worry that that type of cyanobacteria could be associated with this hydrilla and cause dieback of our much recovered bald eagle population, osprey population here in the river system. Now we haven't seen that yet, and it may be something that's more specific to the warmer southern states, but we currently have samples being sent out to the group that did the work, testing them to see if there's any of that going on in the Connecticut River. Since the fatal disease is not yet curable, it remains a major concern as hydrilla continues to spread. The Connecticut River hydrilla was discovered in 2016 and has been spreading much faster and more aggressively than the conventional form. This is a, what we call a genetically distinct strain of hydrilla that up until this year was only known to exist in the Connecticut River. And it has some different characteristics than anything that's really been seen anywhere else in the world. I'm just gonna reach down and grab some here. Connecticut River hydrilla can be identified by its circular pattern of leaves, called a whorl. While the old school hydrilla is known to have five or more leaves in each whorl, this peculiar strain has from nine to 11 or more. We figure there's probably over a thousand acres of it right now in the river. And up until this year, we had not observed it in any other rivers or anything. It was strictly the Connecticut River. So now we know it's in four lakes. Basically, it's being found at the boat launch ramps. 
can see it being tracked out and dropped well up off the ramp, and we're pretty confident it's being moved by boats, a you know, boat trailer. And, and that brings up the whole issue of, well, what can you do to prevent that? The concern for the waterways is major and has inspired both state and federal entities to get more involved. From the newly formed Office of Aquatic Invasive Species to the Army Corps of Engineers joining the Northeast Aquatic Nuisance Species Panel, Greg plays an instrumental role in them all and knows more than anyone that it's a long game. So I've been with the Ag Station now for over 40 years. Part of it, my initial work was on the soil side, and for the last over two decades, it's been looking at invasive aquatic plants and the damage they're doing to our water bodies in the state. Trying to find solutions through research on management and that sort of thing. As we moved from the dock to Greg's boat, I could see the expanse of hydrilla throughout the river, and there was already a sizable pile on the boat landing. A troubling sight. So if we're all ready to go? Yeah. Prefer you wear life jackets, but you don't have to if you feel you're a confident swimmer. After the break, meet us back on Greg's boat to learn all about the threats Hydrilla poses, how climate change is playing a major role in amplifying these problems, and what we can do about it. Uh, I am, but I wouldn't mind taking okay. life jacket. <laughs> I'm gonna wear mine. Yeah, your, uh, your boat, your rules. Be right back. Who's that bird? Whether you're just getting into birding, a bird enthusiast looking for a little help, or just curious about the birds you see and hear, the Merlin Bird ID app will help you with all your bird ID questions. Identify birds through photos, sound recordings, or by answering questions about what you saw. Or you can dive into Merlin's built-in digital field guide to learn more about birds world over. You can even save your bird sightings and memories of every bird you positively identified. Merlin is fun and easy to use, on your own or with friends and family. And it's completely free. To try this amazing app for yourself, check out the Merlin Bird ID app in your app store, click the link in the show notes, or head to merlin.allaboutbirds.org. That's merlin.allaboutbirds.org. So much of this river is, you just feel like you could be in Alaska, you know, you, you just, no sign of development, very natural. You hear a little chirp, chirp, chirp. We have what's called a depth finder on the boat. Right now it's 4.7 meters, so that's quite deep. The beeping you hear is when it senses fish under the boat. So it'll beep. So this section here is specifically deep river? Yeah, this is the deep river. See, we're coming up on a, some dense patches of hydrilla. It can be impenetrable. We have to avoid this with the boat because if we get in it, we will have a very difficult time getting the boat out of it. So can you set the scene for us a little bit? All right, so this is the Connecticut River. Often people don't realize just how scenic this is. It's an estuary, a river system that has a lot of ecological value. You know, we're gonna see the problem we're out here to see, which is the hydrilla, but I would think we're gonna see osprey, we're gonna see some bald eagles. 
For those of you who don't know the Connecticut River, it starts actually at the Canadian border. It goes between Vermont and New Hampshire and splits Massachusetts on the middle and then right through the middle of Connecticut. It's low tide right now, and at low tide, some areas are more difficult to get into than others. This year, there's been tremendous flow like we've never seen in all the years we've been surveying it. The flooding that's occurred was nothing like we've ever seen. Uh, we thought that might have a serious impact on the hydrilla, but it really has not. The hydrilla seemed to have survived it just fine, and in some cases is actually spread. Would you consider hydrilla to be the biggest problem you've encountered so far, or are there others? Well, in Connecticut, there are a lot of other invasive species, so it's hard to say. We, I think this is the biggest new threat to lakes and ponds, because we know now it's spreading there. There's probably more acres of hydrilla in the state than probably any other aquatic invasive plant right now, total. You're going to have a lot more stakeholders up and down the river system. Do we know what effect that might have on human health as well? Or is it just a bird-specific well, problem? In, in some of the seminars I've been to on the problem, they feel it could affect human health. They feel it could affect fish, birds, mammals. That possibility is there. The issue of climate change always comes up. And is this problem we're seeing a climate change-related issue? I mean, these types of problems were traditionally a problem of the southern states. We know that. but. We also know that hydrilla can exist as far north as almost the Arctic Circle. I mean, it's a very hardy plant. So uh, I think we all suspect it's playing some role in why we're getting these issues. Indeed, numerous studies by government agencies and academic researchers from around the world indicate that hydrilla stands to benefit a lot from climate change. Research has found that rising water temperatures and increasing carbon dioxide levels accelerate the growth rate of these plants. And a 2017 study predicted that hydrilla could expand its range northward by at least 20% by the year 2070, if current climate trends continue. This would mean that hydrilla could get as far as southern Canada and reach densities there higher than what Greg was showing me on the Connecticut River. Right here, we are moving along patches of hydrilla. So what you'd like in a river is a lot of different plants. You don't like what's called monostands, which is basically one plant dominating the entire system. It's usually not a good idea. There's a term called diversity, which it's a term that we usually use to describe ecosystems that have a fairly large number of plants with the abundance of each reasonably high. This is basically what we call a monostand hydrilla and we're not going to be able to go too much further or we'll get stuck in it. Yeah, I can definitely see <laughs> there is so much here. As we continued to move through the river, we came across another important aquatic plant that's currently being threatened by the acres of hydrilla, eelgrass. Which is an important grass uh, in the river, and this hydrilla is just overwhelming it, and we think we're going to lose the eelgrass beds and they'll be replaced with this. Looks like grass, so about a half inch wide. Uh, so you can see it right there. That's a very important habitat. There's a, um, one of the fish that uses this for its reproduction and particularly for the small fry to grow up and mature is what's called menhaden. Uh, some people call them bunker and they are 
often touted as one of the most important fish in the sea because so many different types of fish feed on them. And uh, you will see huge schools of them in this river. So there's some concern that that could be affected and have wide ranging effects on the Atlantic fish populations. Having only seen a fraction of the extent to which Hydrilla has invaded the river, I asked Greg the obvious question. How does he plan to get rid of it? Well, um, to get rid of this, there's a thinking that maybe harvesting, mechanical harvesting, or you can get machines that cut it and take it up into a hopper and take it away. That probably isn't going to be all that effective because you're going to leave the root system behind. It's going to re-sprout. But some sort of harvesting is always on the table. Biocontrols, if you could go to the native range, find the natural um, controls, potentially bring them back, study them, and make sure they're not going to cause more of a problem than they solve, they could be released. We're nowhere near that yet uh, at this point. There is certainly a lot of concern that some sort of control measure needs to be done now or quickly. Greg said that there's also the option of using an herbicide, which is known to be fairly effective. And the first steps for that, particularly when looking at effectiveness and safety, is, okay, if some sort of EPA-approved herbicide is used, where is it going to go, and how long will it last in a certain area? So this year, we have collaborated with the work of the Army Corps to do what's called dye testing, where they put in a pink-colored, non-toxic, food-grade dye and monitor where it goes in the river. And there was five sites where this dye testing was done this year, and detailed information is now available on how this moves, because you don't want to harm non-target plants. You don't want to harm the eelgrass, for instance. You know, you don't want to get rid of everything. I'm very happy that we've got the state support as well as the federal support. There are, in the Connecticut River, what's called state-listed species. These can range from fish like a sturgeon, blueback herring, and there's a lot of plants that are rare and endangered, and you got to make sure whatever you do is not going to harm them. So could the like the average, I guess, riverside enjoyer just like grab some and <laughs> and and pull it out themselves? Yeah, the idea of you know in small areas, you know, just pulling it out and trying to get as much of the root system you can, particularly if you can do it more than once or twice a year. But obviously, when you got a thousand acres, that's not going to be effective. People have asked, well, isn't there a beneficial use for it? I had a summer assistant helping me pulled out what looked like kind of a health bar type thing, and we were reading the ingredients, and it said hydrilla. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, so I guess it can be used for other things, but uh, we mentioned that cyanobacteria issue. you got to be really careful of how you, you deal with it. So for any uh, energy bar companies listening in, you could maybe use it, get on, get on this problem. <laughs> Ooh, is that actually a bald eagle? Oh, I was circling just now. Where did he... I always miss these birds that are like right in the blue. Oh, it is a bald eagle. Oh, okay. I think it's like maybe the third or fourth time I've ever actually seen one. <laughs> oh, no, you see them all the time. You actually see them on lakes as well nowadays. So you're going to notice here that uh, all these dead trees, those are all ash trees that have been killed by the emerald ash borer. That's an invasive insect. When did those show up, the insects? Oh, it's a good question. Certainly they they basically killed all the ash trees in the state, so this has to be 10 years ago or more. And unfortunately, those aren't the only invasive species in and around Connecticut's waterways. 
As we went on, Greg mentioned some other aquatic plants he's had to deal with. There's fanwort, a South American species and one of the most widespread of the state's invasives. The hardy, curly-leaf pondweed of Eurasia and Africa can survive harsher conditions than many native plants, including being frozen over completely during wintertime. And then there's the Eurasian water milfoil, which in some parts of North America has hybridized with its native cousins to produce an even more prolific invasive. These are just a few of the many confirmed species that have taken hold in Connecticut's waterways so far. And just about all of these like, plants at one point were a plant that was sold for aquariums. So you might ask, how do plants from an aquarium get into a lake? Well, people get tired of their aquariums and they feel the right thing to do is to go dump everything in the lake, including the fish, so they don't die. And that's how a lot of these plants get established. The aquarium trade has been regulated to some extent on what they can sell for plants. We've actually found the entire fish tank in a lake. They threw the whole tank and all in, and uh, we actually are using it now in our greenhouse. So that's an issue. While we recognize the issue with invasive aquatic plants may sound overwhelming, Stacy Holt Jr. offered a healthy list of things you can do at home, individually and in groups, to help prevent the spread of these species. First, just making yourself familiar with what are these invasive species in my area, but also what are the native species. One good thing is to promote planting native species in your area because that can fill some of those disturbed gaps that invasive species are trying to come in and take over. So that's one thing, is just becoming familiar with the plant communities in your area. I know when I went out and sampled for salvinia, there were signs at some lakes that say, this invasive species is present, be on the lookout for it, and definitely clean either your boat or your kayak whenever you leave this area to make sure you don't spread it to other water bodies. And then finally, I think either asking some of the local park managers or people higher up in legislature to consider promoting restrictions on some of these invasive plant species and trying to limit their spread in that way would also be helpful. And Greg? And it usually comes down to education, clean drain and drive for people bringing boats in and out, inspections at ramps, and that sort of thing. And that's, you know, in the process of being improved. Some other tips to keep in mind on your nature ventures. Drive only on established roads, away from weeded areas. Don't pick or transport wildflowers you can't identify. Clean your boots before and after hiking to rid them of seeds and pathogens. Learn about the plants in your home garden and replace any invasives with natives. Don't release aquarium fish and plants into the wild. Oh, and clean the bottom of your boat. And if you live in the US, you can check out your regional, federal, or state-level environmental agencies for local advice. On the Connecticut page, you can keep track of the ongoing research efforts of Greg and his colleagues, and even request someone from the agency to come out and survey your local water body. Following our interviews, I spent the afternoon sitting on the dock, reflecting on what I'd learned. I had gone to see about a single invasive aquatic plant, but left with much more. Thinking about how ecosystems develop and change over time, I wondered how much the landscape has changed under the influence of European colonialism, how these invasive plants didn't get here on their own, and many of their arrivals were not an accident. When settlers first came to these lands, they brought things to remind them of their origins. Agriculture, horticulture, the aquarium trade, 
Even the large white mute swans in the river descended from birds brought over from Eurasia. But they're here now, creating a wave of effects that ripple through entire ecosystems and economies. Just recently, the UN Environment Program recognized invasive species as one of the five major factors driving global biodiversity loss, with a calculated annual cost at over $423 billion. Even in this moment, I'm reminded that not all is lost. Not yet. Environmental maintenance and awareness campaigns are underway as scientists and local communities work towards solutions. Even the washed-up hydrilla patch had been brushed up and carted away. Probably not to make an energy bar, but you never know. Whether or not we accept this as our new normal, what we do know is that we can both learn to adapt and inspire change at the same time. BirdNote is on a mission to inspire a million people to take action to help birds and our environment over the next three years. And in this special season of Bring Birds Back, our goal is to show you that every little action for you is an even greater action for our beloved birds. For more information on our guests, what you can do to combat invasive plants, or how you can join us in our fight against climate change, visit birdnote.org. Don't forget to follow us at Bring Birds Back on Instagram for show updates, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks to Stacey Holt Jr. and Greg Bugby for their profound contributions to this episode. Bring Birds Back is created by our producers, Mark Bramhill and Sam Johnson, managing editor Jazzy Johnson, fact-checker Connor Guerin, and content director Jonice Franklin. Music is by Cosmo Sheldrake and Blue Dot Sessions. And this special episode was hosted and co-produced by me, Ade Benslahuddin. Follow my socials and learn more about my work highlighting the diversity of the ancient past at birdnote.org. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and tune in next time. keep a tally of how many birds that you've seen in your over your lifetime uh the species count yes i want to say i'm at 130 species i was hoping we could add something to your list today i don't know well the bald eagle always counts Uh uh-huh do you have a favorite bird or plant uh favorite bird i like wood ducks one of my favorites i live on a lake so we see them now and then and they're always fun to watch